0: Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the Business That Matters Spotlight. My name is Warren Coughlin. I've been really looking forward to today's conversation. Uh, It's going to both inspire and may even intimidate a few people, because when we talk about people who are actually trying to make a, make a difference in the world through the business. Uh, today's guest could kind of be a poster child. I'd like to welcome Shannon Keith from Sudara. I hope I said that right. Welcome to the show, Shannon.
1: Yes, Warren. Hi, welcome. And that was a fun intro. I don't know that I've ever been called intimidating. Hopefully, inspiring (laughs) will be more of the flavor of our conversation.
0: Just intimidating because there's a lot in a good way that I think a lot of people want to do good in the world, but it seems sometimes a little bit challenging to do. And I think you've you've kind of nailed the formula for it. Um, And I think when people see someone doing so good in such an authentic way, it it's intimidating in that it strips away the excuses for not doing more that's good in the world. And so I I'm
1: love a, it. Well, since really you're excited it like, like that, me. let's go. Let's do this.
0: <laughs> but before we get into the like really compelling story behind Sidara, let's just start with what it is. At a business level, like what do you make? Who buys it? What's the range of products?
1: Absolutely. Well, we are a certified benefit corporation here in the US. So um, that's a a global movement, actually, but it means that we have a triple bottom line. So we put people and planet on par with profit. So the almighty dollar doesn't uh, make all our decisions. It's actually our mission and the impact that we seek to make. And our mission is creating pathways to freedom uh, for women and their children out of the sex trade in India. So we're fighting sex trafficking through economic uh, empowerment of women so that they can regain uh, their dignity and agency and change their lives and pull themselves and future generations out of poverty. So we do that through skills training and job placement on the ground and sort of the revenue engine uh, that creates the revenues to to be, you know, able to do skills training is selling uh, pajamas and loungewear actually for the whole family. So a really kind of ubiquitous approachable product that's easy to wear, easy to love, non-fussy, not elitist. So Mm -hmm. everyone, you know, owns pajamas. And so we wanted a product that wasn't, you know, just for wealthy people to change the world, but that everyone could be part of the change that we all wish to see in the world. So again, uh, pajamas and loungewear inspired and made in India, uh, those revenues get kicked back into jobs and skills training programs over about 12 different job vocations. And so Mm -hmm. women can choose uh, based on their aptitude and their um, passions of, you know, what they want to do to support themselves.
0: And so the, the products themselves, are they they're designed there as well? Do you have designers? Yeah,
1: we, we kind of co-design. So, you know, right now, most of our audience is kind of a Western audience. Um, and so the sizing and everything, uh, we have, you know, folks here in the U.S., but all of the prints and, you know, the colors and the patterns and the textiles, that's all done in India. So we really wanted to highlight a beautiful part um, of their culture in in partnership with with our um with our friends in India. And so, you know, we're very sensitive to things like cultural appropriation and all of those things. And so we really partner together to make a beautiful product that they love and represents their culture, you know, and then we can export it and tell their story.
0: And I, I really encourage just quickly say what the website is. Cause I've loved, some of the products are they're I mean, it's it'll sound strange for a guy to be saying this about pajamas, but some of them are <laughs> like, beautiful. They really
1: are. <laughs> they're lovely. Um, it's sudara.org. So s-u-d-a-r-a.org, and I just want to uh, mention a little aside, um, Warren, that we are a hybrid organization as well. So we do have a nonprofit arm. That helps with, um, which is a nonprofit 501c3 here in the US, and that helps with the wraparound services that a woman, a vulnerable woman may need before she can even actualize a job opportunity. So things like safe housing, um, you know, for both her and if, if she has children, many women out of the brothels or those at high risks, risk are like young widows. And so they need a safe place to stay before they can even get a stable job. And so the the nonprofit really helps with those those, um, very much needed wraparound services, childcare, that sort of thing. Yeah, so we're we're what um, we call in the social enterprise space, a hybrid organization. Um, Two separate entities, a for-profit and a nonprofit, but with an absolutely singular mission.
0: And is the nonprofit uh, 100% funded by the for-profit or can other people contribute to the nonprofit?
1: Um, that's that's a great question. We absolutely want other people to contribute. So there are funds that are kicked off through uh, the for profit, but it's actually a lot of donors, um, individual donors, a lot of customer donors, actually. So we'll get people who love the products; they'll buy pajamas for the whole family. We do have men's and kids as well um, as lots of beautiful things for women. And then they might add on a donation to their purchase. And so those are what we call customer donors, which is really beautiful because then we're we're really integrating and aligning our values as consumers when we make transactions like that. It becomes less transactional and what I like to think of as more transformational in the way we view and allocate our resources like money.
0: Now, I just, I want to go on a little bit of a tangent because you just said something a minute ago and I'm sure not a lot of people know this well I used to be part of something called the funding network and we, we funded three different charitable organizations twice a year through sort of an auction program that was interesting and we funded a couple who were dealing with sex trade, Um, and you just talked about that wraparound service and I'm, I'm. Without doing a long treatise on it, but (laughs) helping people understand what the journey is from the sex trade, being able to work like it isn't just as simple as "oh, stop that, come and get a job." Exactly. Give a little bit of what that journey for a woman in those circumstances.
1: Yeah, and just at a high level, right? So, like you had mentioned, Warren, talking broad brushstrokes because um, you know not many people may be familiar or have firsthand experience with those who are vulnerable or have come out of the sex trade but anyone in vulnerable oppressive situations so you could think of maybe people who are experiencing homelessness in whatever context it would be the same as you know someone experiencing homelessness, maybe living in a tent, maybe they've been there for some time, they don't have an address, they don't have clothes. And then suddenly you saying, hey, well, I have a job over here. Why don't you just take this job? Like you're being lazy. Why don't you just take this job? And most of us would go, oh, okay. Well, I see now that in order to take that job, they need a safe place to live. They need a shower. Um, and be able to tend to their hygiene. They maybe need new clothes. Um, maybe they have some health issues that need to be dealt with before they could do that. And so they need some time and space and other support systems so they can get healthy and then they would be able to, to hold down a steady job. That's basically kind of a similar journey. Um, and then layer on top of that, a lot of um, you know, sexual trauma and mm-hmm. other traumas that have happened to put them in that vulnerable situation. So there's also a a huge need um, to tend to the emotional and the mental state of the woman and her children coming out of such a traumatic situation like the brothels or um, experiencing homelessness where their next step may be, you know, getting picked up by a trafficker and entering the brothels. And so that woman needs a lot of things. She needs um, emotional and mental support. She needs safe housing. She probably, her and her children need nutrition um, and, and uh, yeah, just a warm bed. And then also if she has kids, you know, uh, assessing and helping about their schooling and then their education. And we focus particularly in India because India has um, a huge population of 1.3 billion people. And it's estimated that that single country alone houses in sheer number, the largest amount of slaves in the world. Wow. So we felt like if we could make a dent in one country, we have sort of moved the needle on a global issue. And so we're choosing to f- focus really deep instead of like really wide across multiple countries. Um, but yeah, that's where the wraparound services come into play. And when we think about it kind of logically, it's like, oh, yeah, it's not rocket science. Of course, if I put myself in that situation, what would I need to be able to hold down a steady job?
0: And what about child care for the ones that do have children when they are getting a job? Is that it, you get involved in that part of the wraparound that's- as well?
1: Yeah, it's really with our partners in India. So we, again, um, have strategic partners in India who are Indian national organizations who have the same mission that we do. And they know the language, the culture, you know, all of that. And so we partner with them in this really um, amazing way. And they help the women and we help together foster programs that fit the woman's life. So for instance, most of these are single moms. They've had children, um, maybe they're widowed. And so they had a husband at once and now they're vulnerable and have no other family to help or the children that they have um, were a result of relationships with sexual relationships with Johns out of the brothels. And so they don't have um, another, they they don't have any co-parenting situation, right? So a a lot of our programs and even the work hours in the sewing center and other will be reflected so that they can get their kids off to the bus, you know? Mm -hmm. And so maybe instead of traditional hours, it would be like, you know, eight to five or eight to six, they might not start till 10 um, a.m. because they're gonna tend to their children and do all of that, their mothering. And then once their kids are safe and at school, whatever, now they're gonna go to work. And so we really try and make the programs work for the women instead of the other way around.
0: And ultimately I'll just add, because it was a personal interest of mine. It absolutely helps for the kids too. I, I, you and I talked offline, I was on the board of something called Street Kids International. And so many of the kids who are street of street affected, either living on the streets or spending too much time on the streets come from those kinds of environments. And so, you know, by helping the mothers become more successful, you're actually helping solve a secondary large issue, which is about street youth.
1: Absolutely. And that's where, when women can um, support themselves with dignity, they do break the cycle of poverty uh, for future generations to come, because particularly in India, public education is not free, so they actually have to pay um for their kids to be educated. And so obviously, if people don't have a job, if they're homeless, those kids aren't being educated, and then you can see generation of um, you know cyclical poverty continues. Mm-hmm. So when you can invest in women, there's so much research around the UN and others. if anyone is interested, just Google it. Um, if you invest in women, particularly in a developing country, they in turn, Uh, by sheer numbers and data, invest back in their children and in their communities. So women specifically can help complete uh, communities rise out of poverty.
0: Yeah, there's an old saying, If you want to change a country, educate a girl.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: It's true. It is. Now, Sidara has a pretty interesting backstory, but it's very connected to your personal story. So just With a bit of background, your your early career, if I understand it right, didn't exactly point to a future in social enterprise, right? Because you (laughs) started in corporate sales, is that right?
1: Yeah, I did. And, you know, now there's so much like as you get older, right? I'm 47 now. And so there's wisdom, I think that we gain along the years. And I see now that all of those years where I was like, well, this isn't really my jam, but you know, I'm making a good amount of money. So it's kind of hard to, they call it the golden handcuffs, you know, it's kind of hard to leave that and whatever. But I see now that that time really built um, my skills, both my soft skills and, and, and other just kind of like business because I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family. So that time was really, you know, my teacher. And even though at the time I thought, wow, this isn't really a great fit for me, even though I'm good at it, I'm not passionate about it, but it really did give me the skills that I needed to be able to start um, an organization. And it kind of launched my entrepreneurial journey. So I'm really thankful um, for that time. And had I not had that, when I found myself in India, I might not have had the confidence um, to start something because really when I was faced with this atrocity that I saw that was happening in the brothels, my first thing was, hey, I'm pretty good at sales. If I can partner with these women and they could make something that I could sell to my friends who I know have resources in the US, that would be um, you know, a value that I could bring to help these women on their journey.
0: And, did and you so think you were? were you confidence. looking for that opportunity at the time, or no. was it? <laughs> <were> you, <laughs> Absolutely so did you know, not. Did you know that there was something missing, or that you wanted to, to make a difference, or was it just? Yeah, I don't really like the corporate sales. I'm not sure what it'll be. Or did you know that there's a? Now nah, I've got I've got I don't know what it is yet, but I know there's something I'm meant yes. To do.
1: I definitely had that, and I was also I I felt like I had a very. Kind of bifurcated life and that I was already doing lots of service type projects, volunteerism in, you know, outside of my job. So like, for instance, my husband and I met, um, we were doing a service project and, and helping an orphanage in Mexico on like a long, like a four day weekend kind of thing. And we were living in Southern California at the time. So you could drive, you know, four or five hours across the border. And so there was always this huge part of me that like I'm drawn to helping people. I realize my own privilege and I really want to help others. And at the same time, I found myself like, and I have a lot of student loans, (laughs) you know, and so I can't (laughs) just like quit my life and like join the Peace Corps or something. Um, And so I I always knew that I wanted to, to have more of my vocational hours spent in service of others and and really in a way that I feel like to do things completely differently, right? I want to be part of a movement that's not just going along with the status quo and sort right. of feeding the beast because, you know, there's always going to be poor among us. And I'm not like a wealthy person or a trust fund kid, but through education um, and going to college and having that opportunity, a certain amount of privilege, I have been able to support myself in a way um, you know, that I can be really proud of. And so I've always been like, I want to do something, but I don't just want to do the same thing that I see that's going on. We, we need to do new things. We need to do it better, you know, right. than we have in the past. Because um, an issue that's near and dear to my heart, like ending human trafficking, unfortunately, it's the third uh, most lucrative crime globally in the world behind the drug trade and the arms trade. And it's actually the fastest growing crime. So we're right. nowhere near even, like, tipping the scales to go in the other direction. And we got to do things differently. Um, so how
0: did you, like, when you said I was an Indian, like, how, did, how does one traveling in India come across brothels? <laughs> like, that, yeah. it you. Like, uh, what was the story about how you got connected to this issue?
1: Yeah, we were... Um, partnering. So at the time, this was in like 2004. So I was married without children at that time, my husband and I got married in the year 2000. And again, he, we've always had a service heart. And so he was actually um, an outreach and, and kind of a missions pastor at our church. And so our travels took us to India. So we were working with this amazing NGO, non-governmental organizations, basically they're nonprofits in India, and they were doing really good work around orphan care and um and working with fresh water and bringing you know fresh water to communities like little villages who didn't have access and then as a result like lots of sickness disease all of that so our uh, team actually and and personally our family invested in one of these fresh water wells and it got um basically matched with this community but we didn't know it at the time until we got there and then we were going to this well dedication and it was a quote, a brothel community. And we're like, what's a brothel community? I know what a brothel is, but I've never heard it in a context of a whole community before. (laughs) What does this mean? And so the more questions that we asked, the more absolutely devastated I became. And I just thought, oh my goodness, these women and children were either born, sold, or duped into this, and there's no way out for them. Like they literally can't pull themselves themselves up by their bootstraps. They like have no boots. Like, this is horrible. And no one seems to be doing anything about this. And this is culturally acceptable. And, you know, I mean, the layers started going and I was realizing at that point without even knowing it, sort of my own privilege. Um, And I just thought, wow, I cannot go home and look myself in the mirror, knowing that this is going on and just go on with my, with my um, fairly comfortable life. And so that was just this like really aha, like heart shattering moment where I knew the trajectory of my life is going to change. I didn't know what it looked like. And I told my husband, like, I got to help these ladies. And really I had what I called a divine flash of inspiration as I was talking to them, because as the woman on the trip, I was asked to say a few words at the well dedication because the the audience was mostly women um, in a brothel. And they had like kids running around that should have been in school. But again, they weren't because they couldn't afford to pay for them. So I just, I had this flash of inspiration of pajamas made out of the beautiful, sari material that these women were wearing. I didn't know if it would work. I hadn't done any market research, but I told my husband and he said, go for it. Like, if you feel like that's where you're being led, I'm so supportive. Let's do it. So we bought a suitcase full in the market of these saris. And I went home and I asked any friends who owned a sewing machine. I don't even think I did at the time. Um, if they would help me kind of make these prototypes of pajamas. And then I started doing a lot of research um, of who was working with these populations in India. And it became like my full-time passion. I had a full-time job and I didn't have any kids yet. So this was like my full-time passion. I We always say it's kind of like my first child that I birthed um, because I put so much love into it. And right, uh, yeah, that, that's how it happened.
0: That's a lot. And so um so apart from the story what can you say about sort of quality and pricing and stuff of the products like so people are wanting to support this but they want to know more about you know so what yeah. is it
1: It's amazing so we sell pajamas and loungewear we started out just pajamas because we were like okay that's easy and again we wanted a ubiquitous product that was accessible to everyone So my being from like a modest background, um, you know, I'm a first, you know, college graduate in my family. I'm Mexican American. I'm a BIPOC founder. And so I really do have sensitivity and life experiences that it shouldn't just be kind of rich people who can help save the world. Like you don't have to be Bill and Melinda Gates to like do your part. And for the rest of us who are middle-class or whatever, we shouldn't get a pass either because we're not, you know, um, ultra wealthy, you know, high net worth individuals. So I wanted something that everyone owned or wore or gifted or whatever. So it'd be a really easy product. So we started with just pajamas and then people were telling us, these are so cute. Kind of like you said, um, that, you know, they're so lovely, put pockets in them. I want to wear them outside. I, they're not just pajamas, they're lounge pants. Like I love traveling in them. I love, you know, and so we kind of have evolved over the last 15 years. And, and now our line includes, um, robes that can also be kind of like a wrap or a beach cover-up and so we have really versatile products because part of our commitment as um, a certified benefit corporation is we put planet you know and people on par with profit and so we want our products to become your absolute favorite to stay in your wardrobe and out of the landfills so we are um, part of what we call the slow fashion movement not the fast fashion movement yeah we want you to They're quality products, they're beautiful, they're easy to gift, but we want people to use them. You can use them as pajamas, you can use them as travel pants, you can use them as beach pants, you know, they're just comfy and cozy and your favorite. It's like your favorite t-shirt, you know, you can wear it all the time, lots of different places.
0: And what kind of Um, price range are you in?
1: So we're about in the $50 to $60 price point. Um, and again, it's more That's pretty accessible for most people. Yeah, I think it's accessible. Um, it's, it's like less than a pair of jeans for sure. Now, yeah. can you find cheaper pajama bottoms at Walmart, Target and old Navy? Of course you can. Um, but you also don't know how those are made. Oh, sorry. I have a little dog in the background in this environment. Okay. <laughs> I think she hears a squirrel interviewing um, during
0: COVID is real yeah, life. Yesterday.
1: Exactly. So, you know, you know how it is. Um, but the, uh, the prices are, are reflective that we are paying a fair wage and, and not just a minimum wage, but a good wage, a livable wage to women. And that's very different than um, when sometimes you buy out of these big box stores. So like you're getting a great deal as the consumer, the store is making money, but someone's getting screwed in the supply chain and it's usually the maker um, and, and the planet um, when things are being made in an unethical way. So like cheap fabrics with you know synthetic dyes, and slave labor out of XYZ country, sure, you're gonna get you know 24.99 pajamas or whatever, right. but that's not reflective of an inclusive economy that thinks of people and planet. Yeah. Um, so occasionally we'll be like, wow, why are these pajamas so expensive? And it's like, there is the cost of making things in an ethical way and they're really not expensive. Um, when you think of it that way around human life and they, they last a long time. And so they're going to, you don't have to buy a new pair of pajamas every year or every season. They're going to stay in your closet for years and you're going to love them and they're going to just get cozier. Um, yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. You know,
0: I, we could go off on a tangent about this. One of these, I I don't talk about it a lot in this because my focus is larger around the business side of things, but I do think there needs to be a lot more conversation about responsible consumerism. You know, oh, for yeah. to say, those bad businesses are not doing things, but then there's no personal responsibility on how, what products I choose to buy.
1: Yeah. And I talk a lot about this, Warren. I mean, this is kind of like my my soapbox, (laughs) if you will, around conscious consumerism, because it is the consumer who holds the power. Like if we all, I'm not like saying we should boycott or anything, but if we all gave feedback to XYZ favorite box store and said, I'm not going to buy this stuff that there's no transparency. There's, it looks too good to be true. If you have a t-shirt that costs $3.99, like I can't even make my own for that without, with zero labor. Like how, how does this even work? It doesn't make sense. Like if it's too good to be true, guess what it is. (laughs) So someone is not getting, you know, a fair shake here. And so if we, as consumers, we hold so much power and we really need to recognize that and be responsible and work together to change systems that we don't like. Mm -hmm. And once they see, oh, there's money to be made, if you look at like the organic food movement, right? It used to be a very kind of thin slice, just those granola pippies doing that. But people um, saw that, whoa, there's money to be made in organic XYZ. Now you see organic sections in Costco and everywhere. Why? Because there's money to be made. And at the end of the day, people who are in business, they're usually not tied to you know, we're anti-organic or we're we just wanna harm plants, they're just tied to the money right. and the revenue and the bottom line. So if 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 there's money to be made and people are willing to pay a premium for ethical products, guess what? They're just gonna make more money and they're happy to put those things out. But it takes the consumer kind of demanding. Um, right. so it really is that just basic supply and demand, the demand. And to your point,
0: it's even, even I even think using the word premium frames it wrong because it's actually it's it's incorporating the proper cost structure into the pricing model so it isn't premium it's actually proper pricing not artificially discounted yeah
1: we need a we need a term maybe you can help us come up with a a good term for that there's probably one out there but one that is just easy and accessible that people like true costing I guess you know we could say
0: so how do you how do you decide how to deploy the proceeds you're a for-profit entity you've got a nonprofit. you're redeploying so for you like just your cost structure, you have to, you know, have to be, you're taking this money and you're applying it to education, right? And allowing women develop their careers in a whole bunch of different areas. So yeah. you've got to pay for instructors and curriculum and materials and equipment and all of that to help these women get trained and then, you know, get engaged in placement. So how do you decide, okay, this is the amount we're keeping in the business. We got to pay for our salaries, um, you know, for people who are working here. So is it it like X dollars on every sale goes or is it at the end of the year saying? No,
1: it really is, you know, it really is in the labor of the products. So we will have, um, you know, with, again, it's all in partnership um, and, and making sure it works for everyone. So we work in like lockstep with our strategic partners in India that are really reflective of our organization as well. So they will have kind of a for-profit entity where they could do exporting and, you know, buy raw materials and they have that cost structure and then they'll have a nonprofit side as well that can also do fundraising and kick in because just uh, the revenues from the products aren't enough to cover all the needs of the woman. So Mm -hmm. it really like kind of subsidizes Um, and helps obviously with the sewing center. Yes. But when we're talking about the 12 other like vocational training programs where there's not any monies coming in, it does need to be subsidized through like fundraising and other things like that. So we really work in lockstep um, because we have, you know, just a, um, a singular mission is to help these women get back on their feet and get trained. Um, So the allocation is For us on the business side, it really is we pay a true costing, like we just talked about, of of the labor part of the product. So we make sure there's enough margin in there to not only pay the women fairly a livable wage, but to have um, some extra that gets invested in those other programs that we talked about. And then on our side, you know, we have to make sure, like you said, that there's enough and that our volumes are enough that we can then pay for, um, for all of the cost of goods. Um, and, and the part that we're really having to rethink now in this ever-changing environment is, you know, the cost of acquisition of customers has really changed and gone up um, in the last few years, but then certainly during COVID. So when all of the brick and mortars, um, you know, were shuttered during all like kind of the global shutdowns, it caused all the marketing budgets for everyone to go online. And when that's an auction environment, you know, the little brands like ours can get, you know, squeezed out by the big whales that jump in the pool um, and, and kind of have the monies to, to, to buy the eyeballs, um, so to speak.
0: Right. And so can you, so on, on your marketing, one of the questions I had that I might be an interesting way. So in your mark, do you market the products as products or do you market the cause as like, what do you lead with in your story of your marketing? Is you it, you know, it really is both,
1: is you know, it really is both. And it's funny because we've tried to do one or the other. And anytime we get, it feels like when we do a pull position, like really one is front and center and the other's back. It never works as when it's sort of both like salt and pepper. They just stay together, (laughs) you know, as kind of like equals. And so it's always about like, yes, the products have to stand for themselves. Like people, no matter what, or you won't get returning customers, right? It'll be like, oh, that's a great cause. I'm going to buy this. And then it's like, ah, if the products aren't good, they're not going to come back or recommend friends or whatever. And then you're kind of dead in the water. So we have to have really beautiful, amazing products that are like, you know, photographed on real like models with good photography, and so that we really can showcase how lovely these products are. So people, as consumers, you're not taking a hit on your quality because of your big heart. No, you don't have to sacrifice, basically. And then we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't talk about like the amazing story, because at the end of the day, we don't want to be the world's best kept secret, right? Right. Like, oh, super cute pajamas. Like one time, I remember um, a couple of years ago, we did get a little feature in like Glamour magazine, you know, it wasn't big, but it was this little thing. And they didn't really didn't talk about the cause at all. Like they just were going on the merit of these are super cute pajamas. You should get them, which was great. But I was like, oh my gosh, like had you mentioned at least even one line or half a line around the cause, I think your readership would appreciate that because yeah. millennials and particularly Gen Z, they're de- they're wanting that more and more of brands so it's like they don't just want it to look cute they want it to look cute and know it's aligning with their values so i just feel like you know, we
0: try on it. that can i can i be cynical on that for a minute sure go for
1: it um, let's do it
0: like so what so what's what's been your experience I, i've actually i've seen that argument and i've seen the counter argument too that um that a lot of gen z's and millennials and frankly our gen, my generation as well make make a lot of noise about wanting to be socially just in our consumerism but at the end of the day we'll default to the thing that's either cheapest or that the the nearest celebrity has glommed onto. you know and so there's a lot of like lip service (laughs) (laughs) i
1: think you're spot on actually warren i think i think there is that for sure so i'm definitely not pollyanna i think i think absolutely that's true And I think we're at this like transitional phase of doing things, right? And so it has to start somewhere. I'm hoping that the actions will become more consistent, I would say and catch up with the lip service. Cause right now you have a lot of lip service and maybe some action, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's better than not having any lip service or any action, right? Like before it well, wasn't like, even part of the And I may be
0: being too cynical. Like I've actually, I've made the observation in a few places that it seems to me like economic, there's like two paths that are becoming increasingly divergent. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, some in the corporate environment, it's becoming more just about shareholder value, but I find a lot more in the entrepreneurial environment. Like I, I, don't, I don't have a single client in the entrepreneurial space who doesn't authentically care about their people. Like I've had people who have like major sacrifices for themselves to make sure they look after their people in ways that you would never hear in the corporate environment. And I think in the consumer environment, there sort of seems to be two things going on as well. There's like a a thread of people who are very conscious in their consumerism and others who are very sort of image conscious in their consumerism. And the challenge is somehow gonna be to bring them together.
1: And I think we need more companies like Sudara, not to shoot our own horn, but that do both where those people Mm -hmm. that are just worried about like, oh, their image and the Instagram models or whatever, like our products are really good and cute. So we check that box and we check all these other boxes. So you really aren't having to sacrifice anything. Like, why wouldn't you? It's sort of a no brainer at that point. Right. Right. So you're like um, so that that's where we really need to be going is um, whether those people want to do it or not. Right. It's it's their What it doesn't matter kind of what their reason is for buying our products. <laughs> as long as they're buying our products, we know we're doing a lot of good with those funds. Right. Um, and if they could be more conscious and there could be a higher collective consciousness, I think that's the best, right? But it it has to start with some of us leading the movement.
0: Yeah, that's the challenge to the entrepreneurs then is to say, how can you provide something that actually meets, you know, and and while, you know, he's done some things that have got him in some big trouble and we could have a different discussion about this. One of the things that Musk did really well Mm -hmm. with Tesla was Mm -hmm. instead of saying, oh, hey, you have to, this car is only going to be for tree huggers, and it has no value. He went to market with a luxury vehicle that people who don't give a rat's behind about the planet will still buy because it's performance based. Um, And so putting products out that are just inherently good while also doing good will attract both parts of the market.
1: Exactly, that's exactly right. And I was really, um, you know, just kind of convicted and compelled to make sure that this product was not seen as luxury, which is why like pajamas and loungewear are being so approachable, because for me, and and maybe, you know, I if I had to go to college all over again, I would have probably like double majored in sociology. So when we (laughs) think about movements, collective movements and how change actually happens and social movements, we need the masses. We don't just need the top 10% or the top 5% or, you know, whatever to like do the thing we need the masses to be able to do the thing so that, like I said, our collective consciousness shifts and, and we're no longer going to put up with slave kid slaves in our supply chain for instance. Mm -hmm. And so um, I for sure, did not want a luxury type product because I feel like that's kind of elitist and then only again, rich people who can afford to do good, do good. Right. And so um, I think I, I was very, conscientious to make sure that this was not a luxury thing. Cause that can be easy to do, right? There's a lot more margin yes. um, that can be had there. But I sort of philosophically as an activist was like, no way. Everyone needs to be educated and participate in the change that needs to happen.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the, probably one of the obstacles to that kind of consumer is the education. There's so much, you know, and I've, I've had conversations with people where, where it's like this, like, how do I, How do I find out what product like there's almost no product you could find that doesn't have some somebody way down the supply chain who's doing something awful. Sure. You know, so then that gives the excuse of being able to throw up my hands and say, well, I can't know everything, so I can't know anything. And therefore. (laughs)
1: Right. Which is, (laughs) I think you're spot on. That's an excuse. Um, We definitely had like a huge target on our back, particularly when we first came out. And this was, you know, more than 10 years ago, like 15 years ago. And, and there weren't, there wasn't a Tom shoes on the market yet. Like people weren't having these conversations. And so we were trying to educate. I mean, that was like our biggest hurdle and barrier educate, educate, educate. And people would constantly be like, well, how do I know that the, you know, the material that you're using isn't blah, blah, blah. And I was like, look, are you asking all of these questions when you go and put your sweater and jeans on the counter at Nordstrom? Are you asking the cashier (laughs) there about all of these things you're doing? Because again, you're letting good, you know, be the enemy of great. So yeah, I can't tell you that every single thing is like white as snow and pure, pure, pure. But what I can tell you is what we do know is pretty damn good. And most of your other products don't hold a candle to, to, to what we're doing. (laughs) So instead of like trying to crucify me that I don't know every little thing and we're trying to get better. Why don't you look at all of the products and see if any of them, what you can say with confidence that they're made ethically and nice and have a really, you know, traceable part, at least of the labor, you know. Blah, blah, blah. But they would always want to just like throw the stones and try and, like you said, have an excuse of if I can't know everything, I can't know anything. And it was like, that doesn't make any logical sense.
0: And I think that's, I almost want to stop on that for a second, because that's one of those, even for entrepreneurs getting into this. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I had a client years ago who, in one of our sessions, said something really kind of disparaging about a subset of his target market. And I remember like my whole thing is, you know, ethical entrepreneurship. And I thought to myself, okay, am I misaligned by coaching this person to success? He was a young entrepreneur. Now I went, "No, I'm going to work with him for a while. And it just took, he, after about three months, he actually completely changed his tune about that part of his market as he came to understand them better. And my reason for telling that story is I think sometimes in this space, people subject themselves to just too harsh a purity test. And that it's more a journey. Like it's as long as yes. people are striving, you know, it's like personal growth. Mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm a good person, but I did a mean thing to somebody last week it means I'm not a good person. No, it's, it's, a, it's a continual journey of evolution. And I think entrepreneurship is one of those. Like if you have five things in your supply chain, you can't control three of them, but two of them you can, and you make choices about those two, you're moving in the right direction. And can you start to influence? It? And I think that's more the conversation, not to, not to criticize people because there's one thing they couldn't control or one thing they didn't know about, the fact that they're just on that path.
1: Absolutely. I think that is so well said, Warren. It really is that we're all on a journey. Um, and part of it is sort of like just the intention, the intention, like some people aren't even on the path. They're like still in the parking lot. (laughs) They're on like the freeway, you know, it's like, okay, come and get on this path, get on this journey. And just putting the intention out is the first step. And then saying, okay, I'm going to do this step and next step. And, you know, and we keep growing in that because I certainly, I've been on this forever. Now, does that mean my whole house doesn't, you know, like every 100% of every product I ever buy is like completely ethical all the time? No, but I do what I can. So when I'm going to buy fair trade or direct trade coffee, yes, I can do that. You know, something that I consume every day, I can do that. I can buy chocolates that are organic and fair trade so that I can feel good about, you know, kids in, you know, the Ivory Coast of Africa, not being slaves to pick my cocoa beans. Great, I can do that. Now, does that mean that like someone will give me a gift and it's not that that I'm going to like make them feel bad? No. <laughs> right. If they just give me a Hershey bar. When I'm camping to make s'mores, I'm not going to like make them feel like a jerk <laughs> right. it or whatever, you know? So um, I think you're so right that we can give ourselves and each other grace that like, hey, we're trying, but at least we're trying and we want to yeah. get better. And our intention and our commitment is to do better.
0: And I think that invites and that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast is just more inviting more people to the table, not guilting people for not doing it, but sort of showing the benefits of doing it.
1: And And the accessibility like you can you don't have to do like everything, but you can do two or three things that would make a huge difference if even just here in the US, not to mention Canada, if all, you know, 333 million of us did one or two things. It's a lot of actions that, that aren't Although, being done today. I do want to add
0: one piece to that, though, which is I know we're doing a little less about business and more about social activism, but it's important, is the unintended consequence thing. Mm. Um, I was telling you before we got on it, like I had a client who had a certain type of product and he thought, oh, maybe I'll give like some of our extra products away to a community in a developing country. And I went, whoa, hold the phone. Like what you're going to do then is then put the local vendor out of business and right. you'll actually kill the local economy. By providing products, so maybe you can just talk a little bit to like understanding your impacts before you do things. Absolutely, and this is something that 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 like Western that white savior savior thing, right? I'm going to come in and give my wisdom rather than work locally.
1: There's so much. I mean, we could spend a whole you know few hours just unpacking that and talking about that um, because it's a really important topic. And a lot of people don't think of themselves as like a white savior or um, a neo-colonialist or, you know, anything, some of these big like college terms. I know you're a college professor that maybe in academia are very familiar when we talk about. So just with the average consumer, they're like, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? Um, And But because that has been kind of a cultural and a social norm in Western philanthropy, what that looks like is just giving stuff away. Um, Giving things away, a charity model, when charity should really be reserved for extenuating crisis circumstances or for populations that can't help themselves. So if you think about children, they they shouldn't have to like work when they're eight to like help themselves if their parents died and they're orphans. They, They should have safe adults that like give them things until an appropriate age where they can help themselves. That's a great charity model. Women that we work with that are adult women who are able-bodied and want to grow and work, they don't just want handouts. That does not provide dignity. That doesn't provide agency. That doesn't provide life transformation. And so charity, like you said, has unintended consequences, like on the macro level of the economies that you're saying that they could be putting the XYZ vendors out of business, but also on, on the dignity and the agency of the human being, which is why we're doing this in the first place, Mm -hmm. right? We are doing this so that individual people that have a name, a story, a heart, a brain, a family of origin, that they um, would know their value and worth, that it's equal to every other human being and that they should have equal opportunity and agency to live their lives in a way that reflects their values and their passions. And charity inherently takes that away. Because it's this power differential where the rich person giving, they decide what that poor person needs, wants, deserves, whatever, right? And so then we can continue to propagate these inequities versus we give everyone equal opportunities. And now that person who has come from more humble or poor circumstances, they are then able to choose for themselves what they want what they need what their family what would pull themselves out of poverty and people have um, in their own hearts they have their own um, dreams desires intelligence resilience grit to do the things that they can do it's just they're lacking opportunities right Mm -hmm. and so that's where we really have to think about are we giving opportunities for people to grow into their own dignity and humanity, or are we stripping them of that by giving handouts and and then we take the power and the reins?
0: Um, And so I think if we could start for that. Do you have any, like a particular story, of one that might stand out of somebody who's, you know, been in your ecosystem, who's been helped by what you've done?
1: Yeah, there's one story that I love so much. And um, this young woman went and I think uh, her parents had been or she was an orphan. And um, so she was super vulnerable. And I think her aunt had like sold her into the brothels. I mean, just a really hard, you know, story. And she, she ended up through intervention, going to our partnering sewing center and getting um, safe housing and getting education and basically having her first job. And the beauty of our partner organizations in India is they train um, women on vocations that they know that they can get jobs. So they work with their local economy and is like, what's the job market? Oh, there's a dearth of you know, let's say beauticians. Great. That's going to be one of our programs because we know that women all over the world <laughs> love to get their hair and nails and, you know, stuff done and they will pay for it. So, um, so we're going to make sure and train people in things where we know that they can get a job. And so we have like a, a 90% job placement rate post-training, wow. which is really great and high. Um, and again, that's all purposeful and intentional. We're not going to train people in basket weaving if there's not a basket market. Right. Right. So anyway, this woman um, came back to the sewing center and gave literally donated a hundred percent of her first paycheck and it said I want other women to experience this second chance on life, all everything that I'm experiencing. And I know there's more money where this came from because now I'm trained and I'm seeing, you know, I can make money on my own and I have clients and, and I have a new life, a new least on life. And I want you to take this um, so that more women can experience that. I mean, just amazing. I was like brought to tears. No better
0: said, example of dignity than the ability to come back and help others be following behind you.
1: Yes, full circle. That is what it's all about.
0: Yes. Wow. Well, you know, we could go on for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm fascinated. <Yeah. laughs> to do. Um, just I, I got a few rapid fire questions to sure. finish kind of on a business front, but a little bit of personal too. Um, What's one decision or action that most helps you get where you are?
1: That is such a good question. I think it was just saying yes. When I felt that mm-hmm. first pain of uncomfortableness and of um, horror, really, in India, I, I did um, a TED talk that kind of talked about that experience. And it was about leaning in to things that scare you instead of like turning away and putting your head in the sand. So I just said, like, I didn't know how it was going to work out. I didn't know if it was going to work out, but I just said yes to, to what I felt like was a huge calling on my heart.
0: Nice. And if you had to do it over again, what would you do differently?
1: Oh, I would still do it. I uh, I would be, and it's hard because I don't want to be cynical, <laughs> but I would be a little um probably less trusting of some folks who say they want to do good, but really had ill intentions and selfish intentions. Um, I think as a young entrepreneur, I was like, Oh, you understand what we're doing in our mission. And I just assumed that they were good people with a good heart and got burned quite a few times. Mm -hmm. People stealing, um, you know, fabric in India folks that didn't have, um, yeah, a lot of lip service and they weren't aligned, you know. And I just took them kind of at face value because I'm pretty trusting and and I think I would be a little more discerning.
0: Have you read Manifesto for a moral revolution?
1: I haven't, but it sounds like I need to. You Let me should, write that one down. Pick
0: it up. Um it'll okay. probably give you a lot of reassurance, even just on that front that you just discussed. Uh, <laughs> okay. Someone who wrote it uh behind something called the Acumen Foundation. Um, oh yeah. I think you'll love, love the story. Um, Great. I'm going to read it. And for others who are interested in just this field of social entrepreneurship and using profit-based companies to address social causes, highly recommend the book. It's very inspiring.
1: Fantastic. Um,
0: On the days I enjoy most, this is what I'm doing. Mm, For me? Yes.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm having conversations like this. This is probably one of my favorite, Um, not just to have a conversation that – Feels like meaningful and deep but to have the hope that others will hear it and and if they even have one takeaway that expire inspires them um either to change an action or to start a new action like that is my absolute favorite um part of what i do and then i definitely would be spending time with my family including my dog um, <laughs> Spending some time in prayer and meditation because I think it's really important to be grounded and to have a full cup. Um, and if my kind of heart and soul is not full, then I have nothing to give to the world. So I, I want to give out of abundance. Um,
0: that's that's very important. Another guest on this podcast mm-hmm. who does uh, eating disorder therapy for for children and youth. Um, part of her business model is actually building in self care for her team because it's
1: really important.
0: I, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, a huge undertaking, like the mission, this mission, you know, of helping to end sex trafficking, um, you know, through, through economic opportunities for women, it is an ultra marathon, right? This is <laughs> not a sprint. We cannot burn out. So we need the, the, if you think about it in terms of like an ultra marathon, you know, what does it take for people to run hundred miles in 24 hours? There's a lot of aid stations. There's some rest that needs to be, there's nutrition. You don't just go without stopping. Um, And so I think it's really, really important. And and I've learned because I've been on the verge of burnout multiple times in the last 16 years. And so I've learned that if I want to be available um, to continue in in this mission that I'm really passionate about, I need to, you know, the proverbial put on your own oxygen mask first.
0: Right. Um, The problem I would most like to solve in my business right now,
1: is not having to pay Facebook and others um, huge amounts of money to like sort of buy eyeballs. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of like feeding the beast. Particularly when we've seen, you know, post like whistleblower, some of the things, the unethical things that these large companies are doing with our monies. Um, I don't, I don't want to. I, I want to be able to take my money out of that, and even my marketing dollars, make sure that those are going in mission-aligned, ethical ways. So that's, that's my biggest thing is every single vendor to make sure my monies are not working against the cause I'm trying to work
0: for. (laughs) And that can be challenging with the limited supply.
1: Yeah. Very challenging.
0: Two personal questions. One personal quality that you most had to improve or overcome.
1: Um, I've had many, which is why I pause. (laughs) Lots of things to work on. Uh, One, I think, was having a little bit of a softer approach to people who didn't get what we're trying to do. Because at the end of the day, I'm an activist, I'm a straight shooter, and not everyone is on the same part of their journey and path as I am on, right? So it's hard when you're trying to tell people, you know, what we're doing and kind of the urgency of, of why and the need, and they feel very like apathetic to it. I would just get like mad and offended, (laughs) you know, versus like trying to be patient and meet them where they're at and, you know, that sort of thing. It was just like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, you don't care that like this is happening. And, um, so I I've, I've definitely had lots of growth opportunities there.
0: <laughs> and what's one personal quality that most contributed to your success? No no false humility. What's the thing about you that you rock at that's really You
1: know, I think I'm just really passionate naturally about things that I care about. You know, and like not Never everything's a 10. If we <laughs> if we're talking about something that I don't care about, it's hard to manufacture. Um, but I I really do think that I'm very authentic. Um, and and passionate, and so that that has a shadow side to it, I'm sure. Um, but the the positive is that when I'm when I'm saying stuff, I really do mean it. It's genuine, and and I believe it at my core, and I think people can sense that.
0: I love I love the story, and I think I I hope part of the inspiration from the for, from this session, our conversation today, is a lot of people, and I've known some people who've done it successfully who do the when I get here, then I will, right? That yeah. I will do good in the um, world once I, whatever. Yeah,
1: make it or whatever, retire. Or, yeah.
0: That's a hard, that's a hard, I did have a client who did it. He wound up selling his business and he's wound up creating a charitable foundation that educates, you know, people in a disadvantaged neighborhood and tutors them to get into university and stuff. And it's, it's great, but it was like after, and I think right. your story is you can have business success. You can have business challenges. You can have the growth. You know, I often say that one of the, and it's not my saying, it's, it's, it's not, I can't remember who quoted, maybe it was Zig Ziglar um, or Brian Trait. No. Ah, anyway, <laughs> Jim, Rohn. Jim Rohn, that we don't succeed for what we get. We succeed for what we become.
1: Mm.
0: And the, that's I always thought one of the great things in the entrepreneurial journey is you grow through the experience. And if you can, take on a way of making the world a better place while embracing that entrepreneurial journey. It's just double the the payoff for you as a person.
1: Yeah. And the practical side of it really Warren is that like every day I can go to bed satisfied with the work that I've done. I don't have to wait 50 years and just be like, "Eh, I'm grinding it out. Like I was in my old corporate thing. And then I could do this on the margin. Like every day I feel like I'm Doing what I was made to do. And so that feels great because none of us know our days. We might not get to retirement like that person did. I could get hit by the proverbial bus. I could get breast cancer. I mean, there's a million things that are going to happen. So if I'm waiting to live my best life until I'm XYZ, I don't, I can't, I'm, you know, that's sort of like this chasing a unicorn. Like none of us I- know that that thing will happen. And so why do I want to kind of grind it out? for the first 50 years to hopefully do something cool in the last 30 (laughs) years or whatever. Um, So just from a really practical place, I think, like, do live your best life. Be the best version of yourself today. Don't wait.
0: And if there's, so if there's somebody listening and, you know, the audience is everything from people who have been in entrepreneurship for a long time to people who are just starting up, but they're sort of saying uncomfortably, this sounds really good, but I wouldn't know where to... Like I haven't had the stepping into a brothel community in India moment, right. um, Like, where's the? How do I? How do I turn my mind to find what this might be for me? Do you have any ah, sort of advice? Or I do,
1: and I'm sure there's a lot of different things you could do, right? There's like more than one way to skin a cat, but like a really practical way would I would say get alone with yourself and your thoughts for a minimum of eight hours like if you can go on a silent kind of retreat for a whole day or whatever, but let's say you're like, I can't do that Blah blah. blah, for eight hours, take a day off. Um, you know, here we are almost approaching the new year. Just have this be part of your your new year's resolution and just have you and a pen and a journal and ask yourself the tough questions. Like, what am I good at? What makes my heart sing? You know, what, where, if I could do anything kind of like you said, in my perfect day, what would that be? If money were no issue or object, what would I be doing? How would I be spending my time? Who who would I be becoming? What does the best version of myself look like, right? So you can be super intentional. And I think it's part of like what we were talking about before. It is going inward. It's being quiet enough to, to be comfortable in your own skin and with your own thoughts. And just to parse out those questions. Again, we can ask ourselves those questions. We don't have to have someone, some external circumstance like forced upon us. To, to sort of know, um, you know, all of those really deep questions, but it takes courage and it takes bravery to sit with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know, crap, I don't know. Okay, great. Then that's a good starting point. That's a place where you say, but I want to know. Great. So what are you going to do? Do it again. Have a meditation, um, you know, practice to where you can start knowing yourself better. Self-awareness is really important. If you're going to align, you know your um, your your values and your heart and your passions, and um, and if you're going to to go for it, and and be um, a person that you want to be, basically, and not someone who's just reacting to all the externalities of this world, I think as we can see, particularly during COVID, you know, there's a lot, there's like a mental health crisis. Um, because there's so much that we can't control, but we can control our own self and our thought life and how we respond to the things that come at us in the world.
0: It's striking to me how how many people I've spoken to on this podcast who, you know, what you just talked about was actually without referencing it is a a foundational sort of stoic principle, you know, and sort of classical stoicism about, Mm -hmm. you know, controlling your thoughts and they can't control external things, but control and how many people who've embraced this kind of, um, Values driven entrepreneurship instinctively have that kind of philosophical orientation.
1: That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, the, the kind of um, want to be a sociologist in me is like, Ooh, tell me more about that. Like, I want to unpack that a little bit. That's cool.
0: <laughs> it is. Well, listen, so where can people find you and find more about what you're yeah, doing love, on the nonprofit side to... or the profit well, side?
1: Yeah. To reach out at sudara.org. And there's, you know, you can see me kind of on that team, you can uh, reach out on uh, to me on LinkedIn at Shannon Keith, um, also our LinkedIn page um, at Sudara Goods. And, and uh, yeah, you could reach out to me at, at our info account. Um, you know, there's always a contact us on our website. So would love, would love to connect with you, would love for folks to, um, to learn that, you know, they can do business and do good and do well. All at the same time. It's not a fantasy. <laughs> it Absolutely. just takes a lot of intentionality and hard work, but it is so worth it. So if you're teetering, if you're on the fence, I would say take the next step. It doesn't have to be a scary leap. Just take the next step.
0: Thank you so much for the time. I encourage everybody listening, go to, go to Zahara.org and check out the products, because apart from everything else we've talked about, they're really, really nice. Yeah. Um, so I, well, thank I, you. <laughs> and I wish you continued success, and I'm just so thrilled you're out there making a difference in the world.
1: Thanks, Warren. I appreciate it. It was such a fun conversation. I hope we have one again.
0: All righty. Cheers.
1: Thanks. Bye.
0: Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business and Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoglincom slash podcast slash apply. That's com slash podcast slash apply. If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, Tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Business That Matters Spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoghlan.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash matters, and Instagram at warren.coghlan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.